This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. Hi there, I'm Evan Troxel. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxel, and in this episode, I welcome Dror Poleg. Dror was recommended by somebody over on the High Par Discord one day to me, and uh, I think that was the first time I had ever heard of him, so I started poking around. And over the course of the next few months, signed up for his newsletter, read the weekly email that he was sending out, and really became a true fan of his work. A couple of the things I really like about Drawer's writing is that, number one, it's really accessible. By that, I mean it is laid out really cleanly, and the language that he uses is very easy to understand. He's actually talking about some really interesting concepts around the future of work. He approaches that in his background in real estate and economics, which he gets into in this episode. And honestly, that's about as much as I want to say, because this is an episode where I asked Dror to introduce himself, and he will do a much better job than I ever could. So needless to say, I really enjoyed this conversation with Dror, and it was a little bit outside of his normal, talking with me as an architect and talking about how technology is changing our profession. But I think that's why he took the opportunity to speak with me. So without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Dror Poleg. Dror, welcome to the podcast. It's so great, and thank you so much for, for agreeing to do this. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you, Evan. Thank you for inviting me, and, and so am I. It's good to be in front of a somewhat different audience for a change. Yeah, so because of that, maybe you could give a background on who you are. Sure. So... I am the author of Rethinking Real Estate, which is a book about uh, the way in which technology affects real estate. So not necessarily tech for real estate, but kind of the broader impact of technologies uh, on how assets are designed and valued and used and operated. Uh, it came out just before COVID and ended up, I think, predicting a lot of the things that are becoming a little more obvious now. I co-chair the Urban Land Institute's Tech and Innovation Council here in New York, and I'm the co-founder of Real Innovation Academy, which is an online school that teaches two courses. One is the Future Proof Office. The other is Future Proof Housing. And both of them basically aim to equip people from both the tech world and the real estate and development world with the knowledge, the terminology, the context that they need in order to be effective when they approach our industry and try to do anything new in it or around it. I would love to hear about the reception of that information in those areas. But before we go into there, I, can you tell us how you got to this point? How did you develop into this specific area of expertise and, and sharing about this knowledge? So I, I started my career in the tech industry, or more accurately, in the online content industry, writing about music more than anything else mm -hmm. and about nightlife, and then uh, learning to code and design websites and kind of marketing campaigns and other digital tools. This is mid-90s when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Then about 15 years ago, I got sucked into a real estate company because I was living in China and I was a partner in an advertising and digital design agency there. And in 2004 or 5, a lot of our customers were real estate related. One, because real estate was booming there. And also because a lot of other industries were booming that had something to do with real estate. So hotels or retailers. 
so I found myself spending more and more time with these people. And then one of them, one of those firms, which was a publicly listed uh, Dutch firm, basically said, hey, you know what? We're just looking at China for now, but we're going to set up a team here. We need someone like you who's kind of like business savvy, but understands the, dig- the digital world, understands retail. We want to build shopping malls. Why don't you come and be part of our team? You know, mm-hmm. we have like a chief engineer and a CEO and a CFO and like a head of legal. We need... We need an all-rounder like you to kind of give us that, that other Connect aspect. Connect all the dots, yeah. Yeah. So I spent 10 years doing real estate development in China, building about 3 million square meters, so about 30 million square feet of different things. Uh, so tens of thousands of apartment units, a few shopping malls, service apartments, uh, and office buildings. Uh, and really participated as this outsider person in the development process, who on one hand is not in charge of you know, engineering or even the budget for the project. But on the other hand, he's the only person that represents the market in that process and that knows the tenants and that knows the customers. And I found the development process very perplexing because it seemed to have nothing to do with the things that I knew about and represented. Right. But I think by force of maybe my personality and also the fact that I was kind of senior and early enough in the company to make an impact, I was able to constantly impact the development process and to push those ideas that I had that came from the market and force the architects, force the engineers, force all the budget people to do all sorts of things differently. But it was always strange to me how this is not incorporated into the process to begin with. Why did it have to me always like fighting, Hmm. you know, to my last breath and using my, you know, all my charms and relationships and the fact that, you know, the CEO trusted me to do things that structurally were basically not supposed to go my way. And that, you know, some, some engineer or even an architect, God forbid, would decide about them without ever, you know, interacting with the actual customers, without spending a lot of time in the actual market. It was a much more extreme scenario than normally, but I think it kind of highlighted how it usually works. You know, when we have an architect in Dallas or New York designing a shopping mall that goes to like Chengdu, you know, he visits every now and then, but then he ends up building something. I am the one who goes around and, you know, spends every day there for two years. I speak to like a thousand different retailers about their needs. And then I have to argue with the architect about why Zara liked their staircase here and not there. And he tells me, no, 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 it's much better that it's there. And I'm like, no, but they told me that they want it to be somewhere else. And the whole process seems to me to be upside down. Mm. After 10 years doing that, when I decided to leave, which was about six years ago, I always felt that there was like a big gap in terms of how real estate investors and everyone else understands the market. And that maybe I should do something on that front. Uh, but in the meantime, I just wanted to take a break and write a book, not about real estate, just to write a novel. But as I started writing it, I had an idea for an app that I wanted to build. So I just built an app that was some sort of a location-based social network, uh, a bit like a Twitter that only shows you what people within walking distance are tweeting mm. and allows you to kind of get into random conversations not for the purpose of having sex with them. So it's a bit like a dating app without sex, also a different way to to describe it. And uh, as I was working on that, we ended up getting featured by Apple on the front page of the App Store, had, you know, a few tens of thousands of downloads very quickly. Uh, So I just said, all right, all our customers are in the US. Let's go to America and see what's going on over there. So I just showed up here six years ago. Uh, The app didn't go too well, but I ended up meeting my wife. And more importantly, the only people that were interested in the app were real estate people once again. So they saw it as a way to add some sort of social layer on top of physical locations, you know, in your sporting arena or 
university campus or a multifamily project or a co-working space. Uh, so I started looking at the intersection of those two worlds that, that, I, that I'm from, you know, the real estate world and the tech world, and researching what I could build there that would be interesting in terms of technology. And at some point, I realized that the research is more interested than anything that I could specifically build. Plus, I didn't really want to build anything anymore because I got the startup CEO bug out of my system. Yeah, actually building physical things takes so long, too, compared to yeah. that, the pace of all those other things you're talking about. Yeah. So, so I just started writing about it, and, and here we are now. Wow. That, that's a fantastic journey. I mean, there's a lot going on there. And it, it's funny because you start talking about social on top of physical, and it immediately starts takes me to like a lot of the stuff that we've read about WeWork over the years and how layers of, you know, and, and even going to the point where a lot of architects, well, I shouldn't say a lot, a few architects um, were really getting into okay, let me look at my projects. Let me look at where people are taking Instagram photos at my projects and really determining where the interesting parts of their projects were based on that social layer, right? Which is something that is totally new in the world of architecture as far as defining those moments of architecture and, and what elements of buildings people are drawn to and, and what, what are worth sharing. It's, it's kind of an interesting layer that kind of floats through real estate and architecture and technology and social and all those things. I think the most interesting thing about WeWork's approach is just that they take a holistic kind of product approach to, you know, to a physical yeah. space that they think, you know, whether you like what they end up coming up with. Right. I think the idea of like thinking, okay, who is our customer? What do they actually do? How can we think from beginning to end and then build those feedback loops, which right. are still limited compared to a digital product, but are much more robust compared to any other right. real estate project. I think that's, that's one thing that most people miss. I mean, I mean, and it's easy to miss. There's so much noise in the WeWork story that uh, <laughs> that you can kind of get hung up on. But I think ultimately they, their process is the most interesting thing. And I think people can use that same process to develop all sorts of products for all sorts of people in different situations, not just for office, of course. Yeah, it's really interesting how hard that is to do or to 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 see architects actually do their their that feedback loop is so key to the iterative process and yet it's rarely actually used in the profession because every project I've talked about it on on this podcast before but every project is a hypothesis it's a prototype um, for the most part and it, and for the most part they start from a blank page and so this hypothesis gets put out into the world and then it's, well, let's move on to the next hypothesis rather than collect the data and get the feedback loop implemented so that it actually builds upon and makes the next one more responsive to what the users actually need. Where WeWork actually did that pretty well. Yeah, I mean, I, I told you, I started my career partly designing websites and being like a graphic designer. And I think in, in graphic design and web design, also you have these people that just want to do things because they look cool and are beautiful. And you have these people that actually solve problems. Right. And I think in, in architecture, especially at the upper echelons, it's more the people who want to build beautiful things or to build things that are kind of conform to some interesting theory. Mm -hmm. And not just that they seem to be not focused enough on solving the problems, but often they seem to not even be aware of the problems enough because, again, they have nothing to do with the actual people who, yeah. who are going to use it. And, and that's before you even get to the feedback loop, you know, just in terms of like studying what, what exactly is the purpose of this project. Uh, often they, yeah. they miss already at that point. 
So, so I read an article by Packy McCormick, who I, I follow on Twitter. I'm, I'm a member of his newsletter, um, and that's where I was first introduced, I think, to you, if I remember correctly. And it was, I think the article was called We're Never Going Back. So basically talking about the pandemic, remote work, and what that has enabled and how you know, obviously it's a catchy, it's a clickbaity title, right? It's like, we're never going back. It's not what it means, right? It's a, it, it means like, we're never going back to the way things were, right? It's going to be different. And I feel like a lot of the writing that you're doing is talking about that. It's talking about the changes that have happened that can never be undone and how foundational those are to the future of the way that people attract talent, retain talent, operate their businesses, operate their physical spaces, set expectations around all of those things about how think who's going to do what and when and where. You know, a lot of the initial concepts that I really latched on to were that was the idea of decoupling location from work, right? Which remote obviously has allowed us to do. There was a there was a funny meme that went around pretty early on in the pandemic which was, you know, what was the thing that raised the technology level in your company? Was it the CTO, the CEO, or COVID-19, right? And it was circled. COVID-19 was the thing that really drove this technology change. So maybe you can speak a little bit about the writing that you've been working on and really getting into this decoupling location from work and then potentially decoupling hours on the clock from productivity and how, I mean, you wrote about it in the Office Prisoner's Dilemma article, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, but really talking about how the workers are the ones who have this choice. They just don't necessarily realize that they have this choice. Maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, so I mean, already in my book, which again was written and came out before COVID, one of the main themes was that everything that we take for granted in terms of what defines and defends the value of real assets is, is being uh, undermined by technology. And first and foremost, the notion of location, of where do you have to be in order to do something uh, whether you have to be anywhere at all. And if you have to be somewhere, how does technology expand the, the number of, of, of options that are available to you? And I pointed out how that is changing, you know, for work, but also for a lot of other things, for socializing, for building relationships, for shopping, of course, and a lot of other obvious things. And even before COVID, we started to see the supremacy of talent that because talent and kind of agglomeration was becoming so important and talent matching, uh, like matching very specific people to very specific tasks was becoming so important in our kind of creative economy. Cities, which were until then the only type of agglomeration that we knew of, because agglomeration were becoming more important, cities in a way were, were boiling over and we started to see some of the largest companies in the world start to spread their headquarters right. into, you know, multiple different locations. So not just opening branch offices, but saying, you know, Amazon HQ2 and HQ3 mm -hmm. and Stripe with multiple headquarters and Apple and Facebook, etc. It was very easy to ignore, but like you could see that like, okay, if it's so important for everyone to be together, how come we can suddenly be in five different places or 10 different places? So it was already becoming clear that something there could work differently or that at least having access to the most talented people and talented means specialized in something very, very specific, which means that you need access to a deep talent pool, became more important than having everyone in the same place, or at least equally important. Something in the balance there changed. Mm. Now, still, the world was held together by a lot of inertia, a lot of fear of change, a lot of people with newfound power, 
not even understanding that they have that power. Mm-hmm. And on the other side of it, people that are fearful of change and thought that, you know, this cannot be done. So we don't want to try anything because probably we're going to become less productive. And we don't want to be the first company to give it a try because maybe it's not going to work and then we'll fall behind. But COVID was basically a, a forcing mechanism or kind of like a, a reset because then you're starting from the opposite side of the of the mm-hmm. equation now you say okay everyone's at home uh, and now we have to decide how much office do we need or what do we need and where uh, and we also learn reluctantly what works and what doesn't work even under very extreme and uncomfortable and unplanned for conditions and it kind of broke that what i call the prisoner's dilemma where if before an employee wanted to insist on something on having more flexibility and being able to work from home and, and I like flexibility more than working from home because I think most people will not work from home all the time, but they want to have that option to be wherever they want. Work from anywhere. part of yeah. the time. Right. An employee wouldn't insist on that because he thought that there would be another empl- employee being interviewed, which is maybe more or less equal, but then he would be down to do whatever the company has been doing so far. So he would get the job. But once, again, a forcing function like this happened where everyone starts from remote first, and a lot of companies have already adopted it. Not all of them, but once you have enough options, it makes it much easier for people to start insisting on things and to ask for what they want. And of course, another thing that happened during COVID is just that the digital economy became more important and accelerated in itself, which means that those jobs and those companies that depend on very specialized talent are even more dependent on it now. Uh, you know, So like in terms of what percentage of GDP gets produced by people who code or who create unique content. I mean, it's much higher today than it was 18 months ago, and it's going to keep growing at an even faster rate. So COVID showed us that people have a choice. It doesn't mean that everyone will stay home. It doesn't even mean that most people will not go back to the office, but it means that a significant percentage of the office market uh, is going to be very, very different post-COVID. And also that even the people that go to the office, even those offices that are being filled increasingly have to be designed differently, have to be operated differently in order to attract those people back and in order to accommodate the way in which those people work, the way they consume space, which is going to be different now. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how even some of those, you say people have a choice and uh, and on, on other levels, they don't have a choice at all because there's some additional factor that's making the choice for them, like childcare, things that were typically outsourced by the the family for other people to take care of are no longer it's no longer an option, right? And it was it was became very clear that we're never going back to the way things were as long as there's no school, for instance. You know, at least for a percentage of the population of the workforce for whatever company you're talking about. So all of a sudden those factors became deciding factors for a lot of people, whereas before they weren't at all. And it was just expected that you would take care of those things. And and now because they can't be taken care of, it's forcing another it's forcing that option even further. Definitely. I mean, hopefully these things are temporary, which is why I didn't dwell on them too much. You know, I mean, schools will come back and, mm-hmm. and all of these other auxiliary things that happen around work. But that being said, I think that COVID did force people to rethink a lot of their priorities in life and, and a lot of the way in which they spend their time. And one of my my most shared tweet, I think, in 2020 was, it's not the office, it's the commute. So it's, you know, it's not even about the office itself, but like, do I want to spend two hours a day in a car or in the subway? 
Yeah. Probably not. You know, even if I, if I like the office, right. the, the cost of getting there maybe is, is a bigger problem. And, and that's also something that I think a lot of real estate and, and, and architectural people miss that, they, you know, they think about their own building and assume that, you know, it's all under our control. But there's right. a lot of things that, that happen around it in terms of the customer journey that you have to consider. Uh, and obviously, the longer and more painful the journey, the more attractive the, the destination has to be. And the more it has to enable people to do something that they're not able to do elsewhere. Yeah, it has to be very purposeful, right? It's a, it's like, what is the best use of the office space? Because it's not to go have a meeting, right? It, it seems like we, we've proven now that you can be anywhere and have the same experience in a meeting or close to it that you could having to commute to that place to do that thing. And so by cutting those hours out, you actually can have a better quality of your quality of life or be more productive or both, for example. So when you start to think about what is the best use of an office space and how do you create a compelling reason to draw people in, if you do feel that location is that important to the way that you do business and being co-located, for instance, have, have you done a lot of thinking around what those potential things are? Yes. And I have bad news for you. Mm. Everyone seems eager to kind of figure out what's the new status quo. I think the new status quo is that there's no single answer. I think the office of the future, and, and I wrote that in my book as well, is not a place. It's it's a network of different locations and services, a network enabled by technology, hopefully, where me as an employer, it allows me to offer my own employees access to all the different things that they need in order to produce their best work and in order to be happy and stay with me. And that means a different thing on different days and on different times of the day, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes might mean I need a place near home to just go and work on something on my own or to meet a few people that I don't work with, but I just want to feel that I'm around people. Uh, it might, so again, it might be for focus work. It might be for meeting. It might be for internal meetings that, you know, the space doesn't matter so much, or it might be an external meeting where I have to impress someone. It might have to be a bigger thing where I'm learning or, or teaching uh, which is an, a growing need within organizations. Uh, it could be a more specialized task like recording a podcast or editing a video or using um, a 3D printer or all sorts of other specialized equipments. So, so it's a collection of all sorts of different things. And I think the best office companies in the future will offer this type of things. Like I think here WeWork is also interesting because they're trying to do at least something like that where, you know, looking at the office more as like a, a streaming membership rather than yes. like a, an album that you buy. Right. And here too, there's different types of customers that will need all sorts of things. Uh, but I think the, the network as a whole and the, the way the network is tied together is becoming more and more significant at the expense of, you know, the individual space itself and, you know, what it looks like or where it is. So I think people will still, different people will still go to the office to do different things. You know, someone will travel an hour and a half to go and focus and just sit on their own. And, and someone will do the same thing just to go and meet five people that they could have Zoomed with, but of course not as frequently or, or for different purposes. And also a lot of organizations will still continue to work in the old way. I think that the change in the office world will be marginal, but it will be significant enough to, to, to cause a lot of upheaval, just like the change in the retail world. Uh, you know, pre-COVID, I think about 12% of all online sales moved online. That's all. Uh, but the change was dramatic and the damage was uh, was immense. I think something similar will happen in the office world. So like, you know, 15 to, to 25% uh, of demand will change significantly over the next 24 months. Uh, so there'll still be a lot of people that need the old things, but uh, there'll be less of them. And again, there's no 
I don't see a, a new formula of what you know an office should be. I think mm-hmm. it's the future means making more trade-offs than in the past, thinking about who specifically your office is for and how they work uh, and not building that kind of building where, you know, it, it could be for a law firm or an advertising agency or a consulting firm or all of the above, each one on a different floor, but doing something that, that is more specialized, a bit like we see in the hotel world. So like more segmented, uh, more thoughtful. And even in hotels, they still have a lot to improve on, I'd say. Let's take a break from this conversation and welcome back the sponsor for this episode, ArcIT. This time we've got another fantastic review of ArcIT from somebody working in our industry. Here's a quote. Our company has worked with ArcIT for many years. They are very skilled, competent, thoughtful, and thoroughly professional network experts. They have helped us resolve mission-critical issues on more than a few occasions Due to their in-depth IT knowledge and the tech industry in general, we regularly consult with them before embarking on new IT projects. They are highly recommended. And that is a quote by Jackson Ng, who is the Director of Technology at Bar Architects. So, as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms. And their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope. Because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry, their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com, arc-like architecture in the middle, and click Work With Us. So thanks very much to ArcIT for sponsoring this episode of the Troxel Podcast. And now let's get back to our conversation. It's interesting to think about the the decoupling of time from productivity, especially in the architectural industry, from my experience, is that while your butt is in that seat, you will be doing this thing. And that wasn't necessarily the case, right? Everybody knows that you're not 100% productive 100% of the time. So by decoupling the clock from productivity, which, again, I think this is a a very, especially for the architectural industry, a COVID kind of, it, it broke that and says, like, you can work whenever you need to work because now you've got to take care of kids, because now you've got to take care of the elderly parents or, or whatever the, the thing is that you've got to do. 
those things just happen when they happen and you will work around those and get things done because you said you would get things done by a certain time. Whereas an office is really the construct before the agreement was we show up from this hour to this hour so that we can work together at this time. And now that isn't such a big deal anymore, right? And again, that asynchronous kind of work that has been enabled by force from COVID in this instance is just showing that it's still possible to get rid of potentially the time card, right? And just agree that you know you get paid based on performance and what you're doing, which I think starts to lead us into the direction of of talent and attraction and this idea that you have about the 10x class. Yeah, so I mean, there's two points here. One, remote work. Uh, a lot of people still think about it as like, okay, where are people going to do what they did before? You know, whether they do it at home or they do it at the office. But of course, once you remove the constraints of geography, a lot of other things change. And one of them is, you know, the work tends to become more asynchronous mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, if, if I don't need to do it when I have you right next to me, then I can do it a little later. Right. And now work is suddenly coordinated with different tools and monitored with different tools. And of course, if I can't stick to the old industrial way of measuring input, which was, okay, just be at this place at that right. time and I'll just count how many minutes you spend here and you know I'll pay you based on that. Then you have to come up with other methods uh, which are probably more based on output. Like, okay, show me what you actually produced or what you contributed, which then, yes, creates an opportunity for those type of people that can be more productive. Uh, I mean, in theory, I've, and I've heard stories of that, you know, some people have worked two full-time jobs during COVID. A lot of people lost their job, but some people worked more than a job. Mm -hmm. And their employers didn't notice because they delivered. Right. And of course, other people also just started freelancing and doing more contract work, which is something that has been growing for a while now as well. And companies themselves realized, I think, and will realize once COVID is over, that they just have a lot of employees that are just not, not very important. Uh, they're just not very effective. And in a way, the office provided cover to these employees, you know, because just by showing up, you look like you're doing something right. and, you know, you said something in a meeting and, and of course you produce something as well, but that now suddenly you're not there and, and you're just not noticed at all because your old method of being noticed, which was showing up is not available to you anymore. And yes, that creates an opening once those constraints are removed for people who are more productive to basically pull ahead to be noticed as productive within organizations and to uh, leverage themselves across uh, different organizations in terms of, you know, working more broadly and also to specialize. And for companies, once they're open to remote work, again, they're, they don't need to compromise on the level of specialization that they expect for employees. You know, in the past, if you needed like a data scientist with the most narrow expertise in New York, so you had 10 million or 20 million people to choose from, which was great. But you still compromise because if you would have looked at a mm -hmm. pool of 500 million people, you would have found someone more specialized. Now the company itself can go to that someone and say, hey, can you help us with this problem? And that someone will probably say, yes, but it's going to cost you much more than your employee cost you. So the company will say, all right, but we just need you for like two hours a week or we just need you for three days to solve this big problem. And we'll pay you almost like a three-month salary but like we just need, you know, three days of your time. Right. And that's a good deal for both the company and the employees. So we're seeing that the whole, what Ronald Coase called the nature of the firm, you know, the idea of why does a company even exist? Why does it have to employ people? Uh, that is changing. Mm -hmm. and, and just to recap that idea, the question around it comes hundreds or so years ago, 
where Ronald Coase, a Nobel Prize winning economist by now, basically said, if the market is so good at allocating resources, how come we have companies? You know, how come we have a boss that employs people regularly? And instead of just having a market transaction, every time you want to find the best solution or the best person, you just go to the person that you already hired to solve that problem for you. Or you kind of, you're basically like a communist, you know, you're centrally planning something instead of just going out to the market. And the answer he found was transaction costs, just that, yes, it's more, probably there's someone out in the world who can solve my problem better every day, every hour, but the time it would take me to find that person and to sign a contract with them and to trust each other and, and to like get reviews and to figure out if he's suitable right. would just not be worthwhile. But of course, the, the internet changes that equation mm-hmm. and it changed that equation a while ago, but inertia and the office itself and the fact that we assume that we have to be in the same place and constrained by geography kind of enabled that more bell curve shape income distribution to survive, you know, to have all of these people that just work and get a regular salary. And yes, some of them are much more productive than others, but it's not reflected in the differences between in terms of how they're paid. Even if one is paid more than the other, it's not a 10x or 100x difference. It's kind of like, okay, 20% more, 20% less for people in the same position. But once you remove the constraints of geography, those differences become much more significant. Yeah, and, and there's a, a lagging indicator there because the thinking didn't change immediately when COVID happened, right? People thought we were still going back to the way things were going to be for a very long time. And I think to a certain extent, a lot of people still think that. They think that this type of interaction that we're having right now over Zoom is just a Band-Aid until we get back to being in person and not really grabbing on to the fact that it has literally changed things forever. This won't be the outcome. This is a a step along the way, but this is definitely something that you can't ignore has changed the way that people do business anymore. It's very different. And I, I, it, it is weird to me to think that there are still so many individuals and companies who think, yeah, this is just, this is still just temporary. Yeah, listen, I mean, there's a lot of retailers still that think that yeah. <laughs> that the things are temporary, uh, despite uh, better evidence. And again, I think for some companies in some industries, it would take a while before they, they're forced to change. And, and there are still different people that like to work in different ways. You know, if Amazon, they said yesterday that, you know, they want everyone to come back to the office. They employ, I don't know how many engineers, maybe 100,000 they might be able to find 100,000 employees who really like to work in an office and that will continue to go there, but it definitely reduces the size of the pool from which they can hire. And already I saw Twitter today subtweeting Amazon and saying, hey, you know, if your employer is stuck in 2020, we're here, you know, we, we will let you work from anywhere. So if you're looking for something else to do, yeah, we'll take you. And, and, and I've seen some murmurs of rebellion within Amazon itself already, you know, with some managers and employees saying, hey, you know, I'm going to leave if, if you really enforce this. Yeah. And we're talking about day one culture at Amazon, you know, to constantly rethink everything and be radical. And right. one fun quote from an employee that I read today is like, you know, this is day two thinking, you know, basically to say, oh, let's just go back to how we were. Yeah. We didn't learn anything from this year. And I don't think it's going to hold and it will affect different companies to, to different extents, but mm-hmm. even the most conservative companies will have to make some adjustments. Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about talent attraction and, and you know, this idea of the talent pool, as you put it. And what Packy said in his, the drawing that he presented, the diagram was, you know, you've got this pool of talent, you've got A players, you've got B players, you've got C players, 
And basically, by decoupling geography from work, now the companies that are fully remote have access potentially to all of the A players. As long as they can afford the A players, they have access to the A players. And the companies that decide to stay coupled to geography or location are now most likely left with maybe a small percentage of A players, but B and C players who also live in the same region or area as that company. And again, I think this goes back to your idea about this 10x class. So you were just talking about people who could you know, work for a few hours and get a few months worth of salary because they're so potent at what they do. They're so good at what they do. So what is the research that you've done in this area telling you about the reality of that situation? Yeah, so I, I like to look at the entertainment and media industry for, for clues in terms of where things are going. Yeah, you had that great story about the TikTok star. Yeah. So a hundred years ago, every little town on earth had their own little uh, little band and opera <laughs> opera crew and, and comedian. And people like to go and listen to them. But once you can go and listen to, I don't know, Pavarotti on, on Spotify or to the best musician in the world or to the best performance of your favorite classical piece or modern piece on Spotify, most people, most of the time will go and listen to the best. You know, why do I have to pay someone to come and play something for me mm-hmm. when I can actually listen to it? Never mind that it's cheaper, but just like I want the best. And if the best is available to me, then I'll go and access that. Now, one thing with the world of entertainment, because people can transcend the constraints of geography, they, you know, they can broadcast their voice uh, and, and their image as well now uh, across borders, we saw that the distribution of income moved from being uh, normally distributed, so the bell curve, to power law distributed, so like a, a big head and, and a long tail. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the past, you know, 200 years ago, even the income for, for musicians was distributed reasonably normally. The gap between the highest paid musician in the world and the average musician in the world, you know, was maybe 200% or something, you know, which looked extreme at the time. But today, of course, you know, the most, yeah. the most popular musician in the world makes 10,000 times more money, or maybe a million times more money than the average one, not even the, low, the lowest earning one. And the same dynamics are starting to arrive into knowledge-based industries. We're already seeing that in the legal profession uh, and in the way coders are paid. Uh, But here too, the office played a big role in in holding it back and in kind of making us think that there's some kind of constraint that we should adhere to. Uh, But the less we adhere to it, the more extreme these gaps will become. And yes, there will be more of a parallel distribution in terms of rewards. It will have people that are very, very effective or very specialized. And again, it's not necessarily based on some objective measure. It's just based on, you know, being the best fit for the best type of company and finding the people who are willing to pay you the most for that very specific thing that you know. And they're going to make a lot of money. And then there's going to be a lot of people who are just average or just try to get by who historically, you know, could have had a job and maybe survived even for 40 years and then retired who are now suddenly competing with a lot of other people in the same kind of very, very long tail, but towards the the right side of it. And of course, competing suddenly with a lot of people from lower wage countries and from all over the world and competing with machines as well, because the less differentiated you are, the less kind of creative you are, uh, the more likely your job is to be automated. So yeah, the the most talented people or the most differentiated people, I think is a more accurate way to put it, are going to make more money than ever before. But it doesn't mean that it's all uh, tea and crumpets, as they say, for them. I think 
part of what comes with this system, if we go back to think of, you know, movie stars and rock stars kill themselves very often and they have mm. problems with drug abuse because their, their job involves a lot of anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. you're at the top one day, you never know what's going to happen the next day. And I think the same type of anxiety is coming to a lot of other knowledge professions. So yes, mm. you now, many more people have an opportunity to be superstars at what they do and to earn a lot of money in a short time. But also that anxiety is constantly there because the benefits are constantly being reshuffled and to an increasing degree, algorithms determine who gets to win, you know? So we're all yep. listed on all these types of platforms that help us find those customers that pay us money. But these transactions are mediated by algorithms. They determine who is going to find our work, how many people are going to read it, how many people are going to share it. Sometimes they even determine how much we're going to pay it exactly for it. You know, the algorithm even determines the price. So there's a lot of anxiety that comes with with this type of lifestyle. And, and I think we will need all sorts of new institutions to... Uh, to mitigate those risks and to uh, to enable people to live creative lives, but like to, to to catch them when they fall, basically. Of course, for those at the top, but but obviously for those at the, in the middle and the bottom as well. Someone who's come up on this show a couple times in past episodes is Mr. Beast on YouTube. And Mr. Beast, yeah. you know, something like 56 million subscribers, something, it's an, an enormous number. And I can only imagine what it's like to plan the next viral video over and over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And, you know, part of that was luck with the the algorithm. And then part of it was strategy with the algorithm specifically and not just coming up with creative, fresh content, but something that actually beats the algorithm over and over and yeah. over again. That's very interesting kind of way to think about these 10x players in this category. Yeah, and for Mr. Beast people at that level maybe reach some sort of a, an escape velocity, yeah. at least financially. You know, you make $10 million, $20 million, you're set for life. I think psychologically, there's still a struggle there. So, you know, there's potential for, for sure. self-destruction because once you lose that kind of rush, you, you might still do something stupid, even if you have enough, you know, you're not just going to retire and say, okay, I have enough money now. I'm just going to go and, you know, yeah. tend to my garden. But a bigger concern is about, the other part of the tale, more towards the middle, where people that are now, let's say, I left a $200,000 a year job, and now I can make $800,000 a year, but still with a lot of anxiety. You know, I'm not making enough money that like, you know, okay, if I do this for two years, then I don't have to think about money ever again. I'm making more money than before. But I think there is where most of the anxiety will be. Yeah, You know, that you're feeling that like, you can do much better, so you can't go back. But also you're, you're kind of facing all sorts of risks that were not there when you had a job. But, but again, if your job is not there anymore, then you don't have a lot of choice. You just like have to, to roll with the punches because that's where the world is going. So I, I feel like you, you, you put a lot of these observations forward for people to read. And I, I really want to compliment your writing style. It's so digestible. It's, it's really refreshing to read your writing. Um, so I, I would encourage everyone to sign up for your newsletter and we'll, we'll put a link for that in the show notes as well. But do you have any advice for people beyond the observation, like as far as what to do about this or what could they do to start to position people for position themselves for success in this kind of new, new economy, new way of working, the new creative class, as you put it. So one, you have to first understand the problem. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people are just, they just kind of assume, okay, I studied a good profession. I have a good job. 
I'll be good. My company is not firing anyone. And now I just read the headlines and I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just skim the headlines. And it's kind of true, but it just means that, you know, okay, so maybe you can continue to do what you're doing for yeah. another two years or four years or even 10. Uh, and again, maybe you're lucky enough and you can do it for 30 more and, and it's all good. But what I tend to do, one, you know, I just never stop learning. Just stay really, really curious. Uh, I think understanding tech fundamentally is very important. And a lot of people even... I mean, I'm 40 years old, but, you know, even people as young as I am, but even some people who are younger than me still don't really have a firm grasp of technology. And I don't mean that you should all become programmers, but I mean to, to understand the main themes, to understand how things work, to understand the jargon and the terminology and the various emerging business models. So just stay on top of these things and, and kind of be able to be part of a conversation about them. I find that the best tool on earth to stay current is Twitter. Mm. Unfortunately, there's no way to automatically follow the right people. But I think if you curate a good list uh, and you can start from me and see who I follow and, and then continue from there, but you know, there's different ways of approaching it yeah. and be eclectic, like look at a few different types of industries. Don't just look at your industry, but all sorts of things that are adjacent. I think that that helps me and inspires me. I think learning history helps me a lot you know to understand what around us hasn't been that way previously and why it ended up changing and and what was the process of that change and what things that looked like they were about to happen didn't happen and why and what things uh, that did end up happening why did they happen so i draw a lot on history i mean i'm an economic historian by by training my graduate degree talking to people obviously from different industries as you're doing listening to podcasts. Yeah. I mean, I don't have any magic tricks. I think a lot of it is just to stay really, really curious and to try to think on things from first principles and to always think of what incentives you have not to understand certain things and to try to think either to eliminate those incentives or to at least try to think beyond them, you know, to it's the blind spots that I see in our industry, you know, where people they basically see something in front of them and they're not able to see it. Mm -hmm. And at COVID, we saw it, you know, we saw the largest tenants on earth saying something and then all the landlords saying, oh, no, 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 they didn't mean it. It's not true. You're like, these are your customers. They're telling right. you something. They're like, no, 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 I, I know what they want. <laughs> they I'm don't the know expert. what they want. Yeah. This guy is only the CEO of, uh, of Google or Facebook or, you know, he doesn't know. I'm telling you, people need to work like this. Like the way I built my building, this is how people have right. to work. And some of these people actually believe that, you know, it's right. not just marketing and they believe it because they're incentivized to believe it. And also because in their industry, it is actually true. One of the amusing things in New York, it's almost a year ago already, but in June, when they allowed people to start coming back to offices, like 8% of the offices became full, but for real estate companies, it was like 80%. Mm. So part of it is because real estate companies forced everyone to come back. But another part is because real estate people really have to be at the office to work. Like they don't know how to, you know, they're, they're older. They don't know how to collaborate as well. They don't know how to use tools as well. So sometimes, again, looking at how people work in other industries makes a big difference. And another thing that I do that I think helps me understand where things are headed is I do some angel investments. So I look at, at startups, early stage startups. I invest mostly with syndicates or with other people. So very small checks. Mm -hmm. It's not something that anyone can do, but at, even just looking at all these decks, you know, it means that by, by participating, I get maybe 10 or 20 presentations a week from companies that are kind of thinking of all sorts of ways to do things differently. And often from that, you learn a lot. Yeah. And I don't mean like learning that, you know, I'm going to copy their idea, but learning their thesis, how they understand the world, what yeah. kind of behaviors do they see? 
I think that's something that that really helps me a lot. And finally, writing itself helps me a lot. You know, just thinking about your ideas, forcing yourself to write them down, sharing them publicly, I think is an incredibly potent way to explore the future. And you don't have to be a writer or an aspiring writer in order to do that. I think the connections that it creates and, uh, you know, we're talking about serendipity and then spontaneous uh, meetings that happen at the office. I think, you know, the, the spontaneous meetings that happen on Twitter and you know, newsletters are much more significant. And and I'm every day I'm amazed by the power of the internet to get you in front of very, very specific people yeah. just by writing about something that you're interested in. Mm. And, you know, and for me, I'm, I'm just a small guy. I don't, you know, have millions of readers, but I like in my field, I managed to connect with hundreds of, you know, CEOs of the biggest companies or thinkers or other authors in the most incredible way. And I encourage anyone who can to, to participate in that. Just put your ideas out there. One of the things that you you said about the real estate companies in particular reminded me that a lot of architects want to, well, the answer is always a building, I guess is what I would say. And I think the things that you're saying encourage people to think beyond their domain and start to think about what else can we do what else can we participate in what else can we contribute to what other dots can we connect how can we be connectors because it is being rewritten like the rules are being rewritten the understandings are being rewritten the expectations are being rewritten right now how can we position ourselves during this very opportune time to take advantage of that in new ways particularly with dots that have never been connected before and that to me is what you're opening yourself up to It's what you're opening your readers up to by kind of gathering all this insight, seeing these trends emerge with, you know, all these decks that you're reading and Twitter and YouTube, and there's so much media being produced. You start to, if if you consume enough of it, and it doesn't mean you have to be like a serial consumer of this, but it is worth playing along with the algorithm sometimes to go on YouTube and see where the rabbit hole goes, because you will draw insight from it places you never thought it would come from. And that can help steer you in a new direction that your peers aren't necessarily going. And I think it could help you be in a position of being that very insightful, potentially 10X class person. So I, I think that there's a lot of a lot of great value to the insights that you just brought and talk about the ways that people can actually pursue. And, and you have to be willing to let go of... of- yeah what you think it is about you that makes you valuable in the old system as well. You know, I left a very (laughs) high paying real estate job six years ago. I could never get a job like that back again now because I'm too strange and weird and I didn't continue (laughs) along the same path. Right. But you wouldn't want it either. Yeah. No, I don't want it, but it's nice to know sometimes that, okay, worst case, I can always go and get that job. I now, now I really don't think that I can anymore, but yeah, but I think what you said in terms of the answer always being a building, it's funny. Like my, my first summary of my research that ended up being my book uh, five years ago, when I kind of tried to figure out what to do with my startup, I called it the don't think of a building. Mm. Uh, so exactly that, you know, people just kind of start with the customer, try to understand what, how their needs are changing, what you can offer them. A building is probably part of it. It's an input into the broader offering, the broader value proposition, but it shouldn't start from, okay, this is the building we have now. Let's figure out who we can stuff into it. Right. And, you know, it should work from the opposite direction and architect in particular, I mean, it's such an intellectual space. It's made of curious people to begin with. It's not, uh, 
it's different from other corners of the real estate industry, let's say. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I already have a lot of readers who are architects and some of the most interesting people and thoughtful people that I meet are, are architects. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of potential there. Well, we'll take that as a compliment. I mean, I, in, a, in a different life, I would be an architect. It's a field that I almost went and studied. It's a, it just takes too long. <laughs> it does take forever. Yeah. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. And I, I, I hope we can continue this conversation. I want to give you the opportunity to plug anything that you want to plug right now, your website, your newsletter. So my newsletter is on drawerpoleg.com. So D-R-O-R-P-O-L-E-G.com. You can find me on Twitter at drawerpoleg and my online courses are at realinnovationacademy.com. It's been a pleasure, Evan. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Troxel Podcast. And once again, I would like to thank ArcIT for sponsoring this episode. Visit their website at getarcit. That's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.